Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, who is also author of the brand new book, Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, but out of order. We have bad, crazy, and good martinis officially. And Jim, I wish I had grabbed the audio of Wolf Blitzer around 10.30 this morning, Eastern Time, hyperventilating about the significance of the press conference at the Justice Department, uh, because Robert Mueller was going to speak publicly for the first time since being named the special counsel, now more than two years ago. But uh, the point of Mueller's appearance at the Justice Department was to announce that he's done with his job. He's going back to private life. But there's still a couple of lines here that, depending on where you stand in the Trump Russia collusion 2016 election debate. Uh, he provided fodder for you. Here's what the president latched on to, as well as many of his supporters. But beyond these few remarks, it is important that the office's written work speak for itself. Which means that there was no collusion between Trump and Russia or anyone else in his campaign, and also that there was not any charges forthcoming on obstruction of justice. But uh, the fact that it's said in the report that they could not clear him of obstruction of justice charges is where Democrats have hung their hat. And they are probably crowing today as well because Mueller did address that in more detail today. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. The introduction to the volume two of our report explains that decision. It explains that under long-standing department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. So, Jim, we knew that this had been said in the report, that if they could have said he committed no obstruction of justice, they would have said so. Uh, and they couldn't do that. But I believe Attorney General Bill Barr said that Mueller was not hanging that conclusion based on the Justice Department precedent. Today, it sounded sure like he was. And so you can bet that the House Judiciary Committee is going to run with that. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here, Greg. The first thing is, as you're watching uh, Wolf Blitzer by any chance, did he tell anyone to stand by? <laughs> I'm sure he did at some point. He tells people to stand by more frequently than Bill Buchanan at CTU. <laughs> stand by. He really thinks he's in the situation room. Um, no, so this was a deeply frustrating statement from Mueller, in part because it was nothing new, in part because it was, I had jokingly said beforehand that Mueller was going to go up to the podium and say, at least three quarter of you said you read the full report, and I know that you didn't. So I'm going to read the entire report out loud right now so that you actually do get to know what's in it. And that's kind of what happened. He didn't read out the full report, but he basically resummarized his findings. I think it was fairly significant that he did not. Uh, he had only made a brief reference to uh, Attorney General Barr, in which he said it was good faith decisions to release the entire report. Uh, in its entirety. Um, so all the reports that Mueller is angry at Barr and stuff like that. You know, I, I don't think there's that much, uh, you know, there's that much substance or fire there. Uh, and the other observation is, you know, the, I, he did not say that anything had been inappropriately redacted. All of this argument of, we need to see the full report. And, you know, the, the redaction, you know, the idea that there's something huge in those redactions that changes everything uh, is not 
upheld by this, and Mueller made very clear, it was very clear he doesn't want to testify. Uh, he didn't really say that he refused to testify. I suppose uh, Nadler still has the option of subpoenaing him, but he, you know, Nadler and congressional Democrats should not expect anything all that different from what they got in the Mueller report. So all in, you know, on that front, that's good news for the president. Uh, on the other hand, he was very, you know, made a point of emphasizing that he could not exonerate the president. And a whole bunch of people are saying, aha, well, we all know that under the American justice system, if a prosecutor says he cannot exonerate you, you must be guilty. No, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not the way it works. And in fact, it was great. Mueller said, you are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Uh, but he also pointed out that charging the president with a crime was not an option under the Department of Justice guidelines that they were operating under. Now, here's my theory, or I think it was very clear based upon this, based upon the statement in the report, based upon his uh, statement before the cameras today. If Robert Mueller answers questions either from the press or from Congress, at some point, somebody's going to put the question to him very directly. Did the president commit a crime? Did the president commit obstruction of justice? If he does that, you know, the answer is going to say yes or no. And for whatever reason, Mueller does not want to answer that question. There are two options. I think he can either say, yes, I believe he did. And obviously the portrait painted in that second half of the Mueller report is not a flattering one. I think it's not all that disputable that based upon what we see in that report, the president would have liked to obstruct justice. <laughs> he tried. He told people to do things that would amount to obstructing justice, but generally his orders were ignored. Uh, and so as a result is, you know, is attempting to obstruct justice, but not succeeding a crime? Is the desire to obstruct justice inherently a crime? I think it's a very bad trait in a president, but I don't think, um, you know, as, as I've you know said a couple of times, we've never removed a president from office this way in our history. We hope to never do it. When you do it, it's got to be the broadest bipartisan consensus you can. You want that to be as the most clear and incontrovertible. You don't want to impeach a president and remove him from office on a technicality or anything where there's a gray area. Uh, unsurprisingly, Democrats say, oh, no, there's absolutely no gray area here. And, of course, uh, a lot of Republicans say, what are you kidding me? This is an innocent man who's getting railroaded by the system. Um, what Mueller did today did not really clarify things. And I think that's going to be deeply frustrating. Um, look, he's been getting the, he has a reputation of being the straightest shooter in Washington and the last honest guy. It's a, basically Robert Mueller's reputation is the kind of man that, you know, Jim Comey wishes he was. <laughs> and, uh, that's, you know, my, my, my sneaking suspicion is that this will end up hurting Mueller's reputation a little bit. I think there'll be a lot of people who'll be frustrated by this on both sides. And I don't know that this is a, oh, well, if you're making both sides, uh, upset, you're you're doing uh, you're, you're doing it right or something like that. Look, I, to me, it's uh, you know, look in the the ultimate po- uh, the ultimate motivation for this statement and for the the entirety of the report, Greg, was for accountability and clarity. And in that spirit, I will not be taking any questions. <laughs> uh, if he's listening to this, Jim Comey is now asking himself third person questions like. Do I have the same He's going level? for a walk in the woods and brought the photographer. Do I have the same level of integrity as Robert Mueller? I think so. <laughs> He's always introspective, that Jim Comey. On to our crazy martini now, Jim. Let's first of all start with The Hill. Roy Moore has not jumped into the 2020 Alabama Senate contest yet, but one potential GOP rival is already welcoming him into the race. Congressman Bradley Byrne of Alabama, of course, who launched his Senate campaign in February, told The Hill he's spoken to GOP sources close to Moore, who said the controversial former Alabama judge will announce his candidacy for the Senate in the coming days. Byrne said those conversations took place within the past week, though he has not personally spoken to Moore. 
A second member of the Alabama congressional delegation said he also has heard that Moore will announce he's running for the Senate in June. Now, those who uh, have relatively short or long memories will remember that Roy Moore won the Republican nomination to replace Jeff Sessions in 2017. And then once he was the official GOP nominee, the stories came out and the allegations that he had been very inappropriate with underage girls while back in his 30s. It was uh, back in the 70s and early 80s, but he was uh, f- certainly a fully grown adult and these girls were well underage. And so he lost to Doug Jones in a race that the Republicans almost couldn't lose, but they still still found a way to lose. And so now the Republicans don't want Roy Moore on the ballot because they'd really like to win that Alabama Senate seat. Donald Trump Jr. responded to Judge Roy Moore because Roy Moore saw that story that Bradley Byrne put out and said, he knows that if I run, I will beat Doug Jones. Donald Trump Jr. tweets out, you mean like last time? You're literally the only candidate who could lose a GOP seat in pro-Trump, pro-USA, Alabama. Running for office should never become a business model. If you actually care about MAGA more than your own ego, it's time to ride off into the sunset, Judge. And then today, the president himself saying Republicans cannot allow themselves to lose again the Senate seat in the great state of Alabama. This time it will be for six years, not just two I have nothing against Roy Moore, and unlike many other Republican leaders, wanted him to win. But he didn't, and probably won't. If Alabama does not elect a Republican to the Senate in 2020, many of the incredible gains that we have made during my presidency may be lost, including our pro-life victories. Roy Moore cannot win, and the consequences will be devastating. Judges and Supreme Court justices. So, uh, Jim, what do you make of the idea that Roy Moore is actually likely to throw his hat back into this ring and the reaction he got from the Trump family. All right. So every time Roy Moore's name comes up, I want to ask the question after the election, after it was very clear that Doug Jones had done the impossible, a Democrat had won a Senate race in Alabama. Uh, Roy Moore insisted the election had been stolen from him, that he wanted a recount. And he raised $70,000 for the election integrity fund that was going to fund a recount. A recount did not happen. What happened to the money, Mr. Moore? Um, But even beyond that, I I love the comment he has on Twitter today. Ever wonder why the mere mention of my name scares the hell, by the way, hell is in quotes. I don't really get it. I get scares the hell out of the Washington, D.C. establishment, liberals, and LGBT. I guess guess LGBT is no longer an adjective. It's now a noun. Like Prez Trump. We're not into abbreviation. No period. Uh, I want to see America great again, but that's a job only God can do. Well, if only God can do it, why do we need to vote for him? Uh, and then the second thought is, you know, it scares the hell out of the Washington, D.C. establishment. If by Washington, D.C. establishment, he means, A, the Republican National Senatorial Committee, then yes, yes, he does scare the hell out of the establishment because he would blow a winnable race. Uh, but the second thing is, yes, he does also uh, frighten people in D.C., mostly parents of teenage daughters. Yes, yes, absolutely right. And uh, I will credit my uh, intern, Matt, here, who said, Roy Moore doesn't belong anywhere near the mall or the Washington National Mall. Excellent. Well put. And uh, yeah, don't go away, man, Mr. Moore. Just go away. All right. Well, the Alabama Senate race in 2020 is one thing to keep an eye on. But as we head to our good martini here, the the big ticket, of course, is the presidential race. And we have 24 Democrats trying to figure out uh, which one of them is going to face 
President Trump come the fall of 2020. But the Democratic National Committee is not thrilled, Jim, that there are 24 Democrats running for this nomination. They're going to have very crowded stages at their first and second debate at the end of June because the threshold to get into those is 65,000 individual donors and 200 in each state. And a lot of people have met that threshold, including names that most people don't even know, like Marianne Williamson. Um, And so the DNC has decided that in subsequent debates, the threshold is going to be a little bit higher. Fox News Channel. The DNC announced on Wednesday that to qualify for the third round of debates, which they say will be held on September 12th and 13th, candidates must receive 2% or more support in at least four national or early voting state polls recognized by the national party. The threshold for the first two rounds of debates is 1% in three polls. To make the third and fourth round, which the DNC says will be held in October, candidates must also receive contributions from a minimum of 130,000 unique donors, as well as 400 unique donors in at least 20 states. So, Jim, they're uh, raising the stakes here as we get closer and closer to the first votes actually counting in Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, Sounds like the Democrats weren't quite expecting to have more people on stage than in the audience. Yeah. um, So, actually, there's a rare moment where I'm going to say, you know what, you know, the, the Democratic National Committee is making the right decision today. And we may look at the end of this process and say, if this is the new era in which everybody and their brother believes they should run for president, because they are narcissists uh, and they have a ludicrous overestimation of their own uh, strengths and qualities as a candidate, um, or if they, you know, basically they know they have no chance of, of winning the nomination, but they really want to be a celebrity. They really want to be hang around Iowa and New Hampshire for a couple of months. They like doing TV interviews. They want to get a free primetime town hall from CNN. If this is what it's going to be, I mean, my, my, I would prefer we went to a world in which people would be like that. We get laughed off the stage and say, no. No, Marianne Williamson, you're a self-help author. You do not belong up on that stage. Uh, no, Mike Gravel. Most of us are surprised you're still alive. All right, you're. you're uh, I'm not making this up. Your his campaign manager is an 18 year old kid. So it's like it's like George Burns and the teenager George Burns turns into it with those body switch movies. And that's the team uh, of that particular campaign. You know, all of you long shots, all of you people who are you know, no, no, get off the stage. We're not going to take you seriously. But if that's not an option. Then maybe what you do is you have the, I think they have like 12 or, you know, debates scheduled. The first two, sure, everybody gets invited. Okay, we'll do it over two nights. It's going to be a mess. People are going to be asking themselves, wait a second, why am I seeing as much time with uh, Eric Swalwell as I have of Joe Biden? Right. You know, why, why are we, why is everybody getting the same four minutes over two nights uh, in this ludicrously long-winded, you know, watching 10 Democrats, 11, 12 Democrats at a time all answer basically the same question the same way. Uh, the debates will be three hours. It'll be unbelievably long and painful, but fine. We'll go through this twice. But starting in September, it gets real. All right. You know, we, we, we joked about the idea of the NCAA tournament and the yes. play in rounds and stuff like that. You know, starting in September, we start taking this serious. And if you're not at 2%, go home. And oh, by the way, that might include folks like Kirsten Gillibrand. <laughs> that might include folks like uh, Julian Castro. You know, there are a whole bunch of folks who thought they were going to be big names who might not end up being big names. And if you do gradually ratchet that up, uh, that once, you know, Iowa starts voting or, or maybe right before the eve of the Iowa caucuses, you might have it down to the traditional, uh, you know, eight candidates or so, maybe 10 or something like that. You know, really, they're only after Booker, you, you hit that one, two percent category. So the moment they raise that threshold of three percent or four percent. A whole bunch of these folks are going home, and maybe this, maybe this is the answer, to give everybody the year before people actually start voting, 
okay, fine. If you're running to be EPA administrator like Jay Inslee, go right ahead. Fine, right? <laughs> okay, if you're Bill de Blasio and you're on the run for a string of gruesome murders of groundhogs and you can't stay in your home jurisdiction anymore, fine. We'll let you do this for us. But after the first two, okay, fun's over. We're trying to pick a president here. All you also rans, wannabes, and never were, get out of the pool. It's adult swim time now. Well, I, Jim, I agree in terms of uh, the process. If you want a smooth, serious process, this is the way to go. But if we want awesome fodder for how loony the Democrats have become, that's when you really want these people on the stage. And hopefully they'll give us a lot of good material in these first couple rounds of the debates. I mean, if you get Mike Gravel out there, uh, I mean, he's just a flat-out moonbat at this point. If you got Eric Swalwell out there saying if uh, it's an issue that doesn't affect white males, I'll pass the mic. I mean, that's going to be gold for <laughs> the Republicans <laughs> and all these other people with their uh, increasingly radical position. So while we understand that the Democrats want to winnow the field to people who actually have a chance, uh, it's going to be highly entertaining. It's like when Al Sharpton was running in 2004. He had zero chance of winning, but man, did he make those events fun. Yeah, and you could also kind of point to that or Carol Mosley Braun or Dennis Kucinich or any one of those long, you know, long shots of, of yesteryear to say, you know, at some point somebody could have intervened and said, okay, you're not a serious candidate. Get off the stage. Um, <laughs> and, and they didn't. And this is where we are. So at some point, somebody's got to say, no, you don't get, you know, uh, John Delaney, who, by the way, is a real person. <laughs> <laughs> um, who is running for president, a Maryland congressman who nobody has heard of. Like, I say his name, and a whole bunch of people say, come on, that's one of those fictional stand-in candidates in those, you know, <laughs> fictional series. You know, congressman John Delaney of Maryland. No, he's a real person. He's been running since 2017. Like, that's the thing that really makes it sad. He's been running for three years, and you still haven't noticed it. <laughs> right? You, you know who Greg is. You know who I am. And we're not even running for president. But anyway, um, Delaney's running. And he's, you know, he, he want, you know, one of the mess thresholds was the you know, number of donors. So Delaney has this deal where if you donate a dollar to his campaign, he'll donate $2 to the charity of your choice. First of all, this is totally legal. And the second thing is, is that, you know, Delaney's independently wealthy. He can afford to do this. You know, whatever thresholds you create, people will figure out a way to game the system. Now, uh, is it possible that you go up on stage and somebody says, oh, you know, that, that Andrew Yang guy sounds kind of interesting. He really has got a whole bunch of ideas. I suppose it's possible. There's no, you know. I don't want to be completely cruel-hearted, but I think most of these people are here with a, just a wild overestimation of their own appeal, a wild overestimation that you know the country is yearning to see them be president. Um, and I, I, there's a part of me that enjoys the humiliation of these people, Greg. Um, that's the kind of warm, compassionate guy I am. But I do think after a while, it does get in the way of actually giving good candidates a chance. I wrote about this today in The Jolt where, you know, Bobby Jindal never appeared in prime time in the 2016 presidential campaign. And I will never forgive you, America, and your cable television <laughs> news networks. Um, in part because, you know, you, like George Pataki and, and uh, Jim Gilmore uh, were totally looked in the mirror and they saw a president staring back at them. Um, and guys like Huckabee and Santorum were like, look, the, the, the party didn't want me before, but now they're really going to love me. And uh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> nothing changed. Like, like yeah, well, your friend is like, no, I'm going to buy this car. You don't really want to buy that car. It's 11. No, no, I'm going to fix it up. You don't have the skills. You know, this is, you know, every one of these candidates needs a friend to say, this is not going to work out the way you hope. And, and none of these candidates have this person in their life to say, this is, you don't want to do this. The presidency is actually a really awesome responsibility um, and a great burden. And, oh, you know, you look at these guys, they age 10 years in, four, in, in a four-year span. Uh, but nobody sees it. Everybody sees it as some sort of giant trophy they get to take home. So, you know. I have a lot of built-up, pent-up angst about this, Greg, and 
listeners will get to hear about this almost as often as you'll get to hear about Between Two Scorpions, available for <laughs> pre-order on Amazon right now. I get what they're trying to do by not making one debate completely irrelevant, but the, now you run the chance of not having the people who do have a chance to be able to interact with each other. And so at yeah, least at least until... The, 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 the argument was, you know, they didn't want, they didn't like the way uh, Republicans had the, you know, the ready for primetime players and the not ready for primetime players. The kitty table debates beginning at 6 p.m. beforehand. Right. And so good. They, they just said, so they decided the plan is, I believe, where everybody who qualifies, they're going to pick by random. And if they have to do it over two nights, they're going to do it over two nights. Well, let's face it. The 10th candidate to speak that evening is going to have you know, less attention than the first candidate to speak that evening, because I think viewers are going to tune in with great excitement at the beginning. And then hour two will be less viewed than hour one. And if there's hour three, hour three will be less viewed than hour two. Uh, and then I think the second night will have much lower ratings, because you know, unless Biden and Sanders and all the big names end up in that one. Because I don't think there's a nor you know, like there's a limited audience appetite for this. And the other thing is that most of these candidates, you know, depending on how much time they get to elaborate on their, their answers, are all basically going to be giving the same thing. It's not like there's a huge ideological variety of these candidates. Maybe somebody like Tulsi Gabbard or Hickenlooper. You know, Greg, you really we've been talking about this topic for five minutes and you have only named like half the field. <laughs> No, that's exactly right. And uh, I don't know if they're going to fan them out the way that the Republicans did with the people highest in the polls in the middle and then less and less as you get towards the edge. Because, you know, when you had Trump and Cruz and, and Rubio and maybe Carson up there, I mean, you could have shot Kasich in the neck with a tranquilizer dart and dragged him off stage for 45 minutes and nobody would have noticed. <laughs> Wait, is this a plan, Greg? Is this, uh... Don't tease me like that. Not don't get my uh, hopes up. Not recommending it, but just uh, we're we're just we're spitballing uh, <laughs> Democrats. Just saying, if you want to try, you know. just mentioning that just because you're on the same stage with the uh, top uh, level uh, candidates doesn't mean you're going to get the same time as the top level candidates. At least that's the way it was last time. We'll see if that changes this time around. So we are not advocating harm to the former governor of Ohio. Uh, just just making a point. Jim, have a good day. Good luck with the pre-sales, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. If you love the podcast, please give us a nice review over at iTunes. And remember, you can also call us at Play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast at Alexa and uh, Google Home and all that sort of good stuff. Join us again on Thursday for the next 3 Martini Lunch.